Praise the Lord, everybody. All right, we're getting there. Let's try it one more time. Praise the Lord, everybody. Hallelujah. Our God is good, is he not? All the time, he is good. Amen. Amen. Um, well, this morning, I have the honor and the privilege of being with you and sharing the scriptures with you. I am not, this is not normally what I do, but I am happy to be here, and I'm asking that you pray for me while we are, are together, you know, for this next hour and a half. All right, great. <laughs> You're with me. <laughs> um, no, I won't be that long. Uh, I promise I will not be longer than an hour. Um, but before... <laughs> Before we get started, I know that um, as two congregations, uh, we just uh, said goodbye to uh, Pastor Josh uh, last week. Um, but as Mars Hill, we also um, have an opportunity to say goodbye, and we're not going to necessarily bring him up here to talk or anything, but Jamal Tennant, who has been part of Mars Hill Fellowship Church for many, many years, he was with us um, since his undergrad days. You know him as Jamal playing on the drums. This will be his last Sunday with us as he will be moving to Denver, Colorado. So I just want us to just give a thank you to God for the time that Jamal has been able to share with us. He has been a blessing to Mars Hill. He has been a blessing to me and my family. Um, and just also thank, thank Jamal for the time that he was here with us. So if we just can take a moment. And he's back there if you're wondering, who's Jamal? <laughs> Amen. He will be sorely, sorely missed. Um, all right, so let's get going. So you who have been coming to church here, if, I, if uh, you don't realize it's now been over a year, since we've been worshiping together, Marcel Fellowship Church in High Rock, Brookline. Um, I know you see me quite often. I'm the lady that's usually back there sitting with, um, singing with Jason and leading the congregation in worship. Um, being a worship leader is actually a newer part of my identity. I've, not, I've sung most of my life, but in terms of leading worship, that's something that is rather new. Um, but obviously, that's not all of me. I'm a daughter, a sister, a wife, a mother, a child of Ghanaian heritage, a Jersey girl, that's right, Jersey, a black woman in America, a mother, that's right, <laughs> a mother to black boys, a scientist, a, that's right. <laughs> a pastor, and most importantly, <laughs> a child of God. Amen. That's right. <laughs> um, I am wrapped up in this package created by God, made in his image. Thankfully, have answered the call to surrender my life to him and to bring him glory. And I'm grateful to God for all of the different parts of me, those that I had no say in and those that I participated in the making. Bringing my whole life to him in surrender to Christ's lordship by believing on Christ's virgin birth, 
his death on the cross for the atonement of sin, his bodily resurrection. I just wanted to make sure I get that in there. So if you needed to know what the gospel was, you heard it at least once. Um, that has ushered me into this deep family that is known as the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Over the last several years, I have been on a journey for truth, for justice, and specifically not the American way as it relates to the gospel and the church. Don't get me wrong, I love being an American. I was born in this country. Being American is part of my identity, part of what makes the story of me. And as I said earlier, I'm grateful to God for it. The funny thing about being an American with Ghanaian immigrant parents is that I'm constantly weaving through between the two, the two things, right? The two cultures. Uh, between my Ghanaian immigrant parents' mind of working hard because my success is a testimony of their sacrifices. My choices reflect back on them. I don't know how many children of immigrant parents are, but I don't know if you ever heard, I know I've heard from when I was a kid, Make sure you make the right choices because it affects the entire family. But then there's also this pull to try to achieve the American dream. You get a good job so that you can make a lot of money and build a comfortable home and attain as much ease as possible for you and your family. If I can be honest, I have at times, and I don't know, maybe you have as well, bought into this idea of the American dream. This dream which can have us longing for comfort and the well-being of ourselves and our loved ones alone. But just like every part of my identity, I also have to surrender this brand of Americanness, this Ghanaian immigrant mindset, American dream attaining thing that is wrapped up in me to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But to confuse things even more, there's a part of me that is also acutely aware of the realities of life in this country and sometimes can be exemplified in the church that drives me to my knees in prayer. You see, along with the regular ups and downs of life, which occur for everyone, Job, he said it, it was said in Job very succinctly, the NLT version of Job 14.1 says, how frail is humanity, how short is life, how full of trouble. Or the NIV version, which says, mortals born of woman are a few days and full of trouble. So this me, who is a part of the mortals there, wrapped up in black skin, born in America, married to a black man, and has birthed three black boys, knows that there are dangers I can't protect them from, no matter how hard I try, simply because of race. Church, there is work to be done and a reliance on the Holy Spirit to be had in order to break down the ever-present stronghold of white supremacy and racism that has at times been accepted in the church 
and is often reflected outside the church walls and in the communities around us. My topic today is racial reconciliation is a bridge to Christian unity. So as you can probably tell, this is not going to be an easy on the ears kind of message. You know, it's going to be kind of hard. It's hard to put together. It's going to be hard to hear. But is that, is that okay? Is that okay? All right. You guys are praying for me? All right. Let's go. So after the extra judicial killings of Amadou Diallo, that was what, 1999? Eastern Massachusetts' own DJ Henry in 2010, Trayvon Martin, 2012, Mike Brown, 2014, Eric Garner, 2014, 12-year-old Tamir Rice, 2014, Sandra Bland, 2015, and I haven't even named them all. That's just a few. I wasn't going to name them, but there's also Philando Castile, there's Alton Sterling, there's Laquan McDonald, there's a whole host I found myself weeping at the feet of Jesus, asking not only for the protection of my family in what seemed like an assault on the humanity of people who looked like me, but an awakening in his church that these things should not stand. I found two things in answer to that prayer. One, the realization that a great deal of the American church did not really want to tackle this issue. And two, the introduction, though, to a number of American Christians who were fiercely seeking the Lord's face to bring racial reconciliation to God's people in America. I was led to be the bridge, a racial reconciliation program created by Latasha Morrison. By the way, she just uh, dropped a book of that same name. I encourage you to purchase it. And this program's mission is for the church to be a credible witness in the world and to work towards the realization of Jesus's prayer that was found in today's text. Uh, so now what we won't do, though, in this sermon is necessarily drive, dive deep into my racial identity awareness journey, but I think there's just a few things that we all should be aware of. First of all, we should know that although race is a social construct, we live in a society that puts a whole lot of stock in that construct. So everyone here, we have a race. We all have an ethnicity, and unless you're Native American, it's not American. We come from all over this world, descendants of different parts of this world. And we all have a culture. And our culture comes from so many different things. We put that in our daily lives, from within our home, within the culture of your parents or your grandparents' household or their homelands, the culture that has been cultivated from the inception of this country, the culture of our church traditions. I love gospel. That's the church tradition I came from. That's why I'm always listening to gospel music. Just to name a few, we all have a culture. So... We all have all of these different things that are part of us individually and collectively, and yet Jesus prayed that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. Unity 
out of our differences. What a tall, tall order. But what a magnificent picture of our God, his creativity, and his power. I, for one, believe that, the American, that in the American church, racial reconciliation has to be part of the equation that brings unity to the body. So let's pray and look to the scriptures. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share in your word with these, your people. I pray, Lord, that you would guide uh, our time together, that your spirit would be made ever present, that we would hear your voice, we would hear your word, and we would be doers as well. We give you glory, we give you honor, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, John 17, which was read earlier, this is a time of intercessory prayer. So this point in Jesus's life, it was right before his crucifixion. He was spending his last pre-death moments with his disciples. They had the last supper, they were celebrating the Passover, he washed their feet, and he was talking to them about what was to happen to him. Then we get to this prayer, which is significant because this is actually one of the moments we see in Scripture where our Lord as intercessor is at work. So if we look to Paul's words in Romans 8 and the 34th chapter, we, we can see that now in our current time, Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. But here in this text, we see him interceding for believers even before his death. And the prayer starts off with Jesus expressing that he has accomplished the goal of his arrival those 33 years prior. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one who you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. So he's starting off like the job is done. I have completed what you sent me here to do. Um, now it's time for the next phase. But then if you look down in that text, we see from verse 9 that Jesus expressly states that he is not at this moment praying for the world, but for his followers. So make no mistake, this is a prayer for those of us who are in what one would say the fold. This is a prayer for those of us who are a part of the ecclesia, the called out ones. In verse 11, he begins to pray about the unity of the believers, starting with his disciples. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in the world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united 
just as we are. Then, if you go down to verse 20, he starts praying also for those followers who will believe in the message of the gospel beyond the original disciples. And he says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world would believe you sent me. So there's a purpose for this unity. It's not just so that we can be happy about our unity, but that we can be an example to the world so that they know why Jesus was sent. But I want to just stop for a moment and appreciate the significance of this prayer for unity. In Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, he taught about loving God and neighbor. He taught about true worship. He taught about a great many things. But it is here that he is interceding and praying for oneness among believers. So it was a little bit more than just teaching. He also needed to pray for it because he knew us. He knew humanity, and he knew what was ahead, and so took the time to pray for us because we so desperately needed it. This concept of unity is also reiterated by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So what does this mean, really? We know that the Father and Son are one. The term used in all the verses here that describes unity is one that is defined as the singular number, one. We can see from John, the first chapter, that the Father and Son were one from the beginning. He says in John 1, 1, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. So the word who is Jesus was one with the Father. This oneness that the Father and Son expresses here is part and parcel of their existing one with the other. The word was with God. He existed in the beginning with God. There is a notion of existing with each other that leads us to grow into oneness. But it's not a superficial existing with one another, you know? So every Sunday uh, for a few hours, we come as two separate churches um, to worship together. And then some of us eat together downstairs after service. Some of us meet outside together, outside of church, whether in small group or even in smaller contexts. So that's starting. That's starting the process of existing together. And, you know, I do actually want to take this time to thank those because I've been grateful to 
um, not only Mars Hill members, but also High Rock members who have joined, they joined at my house back in December to hear the process of kidney transplantation and a growing community has formed around our family as we anticipate a donor for my husband. So this is the coming, starting to come together. It's not the full fruition of coming together, but it's just the starting of it. And we should understand that for unity and oneness to be realized, we have to live integrated lives. If we declare that we want unity but fail to exist together in meaningful ways, then we don't really want unity. We want a picture. And we have a great picture. We have a wonderful picture even of this partnership. But we have to really get into it if we really want unity. So to achieve oneness, we must first acknowledge the truth of it all. We live very different lives in this country. We have very different outlooks on what surviving and thriving means based on the experiences that we have had. Here is where I posit that racial reconciliation would be a bridge to this unity that our Savior prayed for. Now, if we think about a stone bridge, in my mind's eye, while I was preparing this, I was thinking about the um, bridge, the Harvard Bridge between Cambridge and Boston, the it's like maroon bridge. I think of it kind of as a stone bridge. Um, and if we take Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge as a template, I would suggest that truth and justice are the stones on the reconciliation bridge that leads to Christian unity. So let's start off with truth. As Christians, we love truth. In fact, in this prayer in John 17, Jesus prays in verse 17, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Jesus refers to himself in John 14, verse 6, as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus states to his disciples in John 8, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As believers, truth is part of our pedigree. We love truth. The truth of the gospel is what led to our conversions and drives our lives. But we sometimes shy away from historical truth, especially as it relates to race and American life. We know the overarching details of the American historical narrative. The Native Americans were displaced, Africans were enslaved, enslaved. Discrimination towards Asians was rampant and codified into laws. And even now we see asylum seekers from Latin America are being held in detention centers and families separated as a means to slow down certain types of immigration. But we tend to stop at that high level not taking what I call the emotional courage to dig deeper into our collective history and assess how it all relates to us today. In truth, the effects of what occurred 200, 100, 50, 30, even five years ago are still felt today. The stone of truth, the truth about our history, dare I say the truth about our complicity in the horror of the racial story of America must be added to that reconciliation bridge. 
We must be aware of the truth, acknowledge and lament the truth, and seek God to deal with the shame and guilt of which that truth brings. So I said earlier that I am a daughter of Ghanaian heritage. I am a, I don't know if you call it first generation, I guess so, first generation American. My parents are from Ghana. I have older siblings who were born in Ghana. Me and only two of my siblings were actually born in America. And um, it was a bit easier growing up to be a Ghanaian American more than it was to be an African American. That might sound weird, but there's this thing about being in Africa, being from Africa, that kind of put me in the bin of good black person. And growing up, it was easy to buy into it. It's this stereotype of the model minority. Have any of you guys heard about that? Have you heard about it? That there are a group of us who are not white, but are deemed safe by the majority. We are seen as falling in line, working hard to fit in, to assimilate, and therefore we get to be rewarded. Rewarded with marginal acceptance into majority culture. Can I be real? It's really, really tempting. It's tempting to feed into that stereotype. To be put into a group that gets to be put on a pedestal and then asks others who are marginalized, why can't you just be like them? But I'm going to say it, that this is a myth. There is no such thing as a model minority. Let us get that clear. It is a lie from the pit of hell, and it is used to keep us at odds with each other and to keep the heel of injustice on the necks of the most marginalized and to be bar a barrier to unity even among God's people. This myth is harmful not only to those who don't fit in, but to those who do. How dare any of us believe that we're superior because of a stereotype and denigrate the imago Dei, the image of God of those who don't fit into that stereotype. The thing is racial injustice is not just a black and white thing. The insidious nature of racism, the sin of it all, is that it drives a wedge wherever it can, even between people of color. One does not have to be white to hold anti-black sentiment or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-Asian or anti-any people group sentiment. If as Christians we also buy into these things, no matter how unconscious it is, it destroys our witness. How can we wholeheartedly preach the gospel to all nations when we have the nations within our borders and think less of the people that we are called to preach to? How can we show God's love to people who when we initially see them, when we see their dress, when we hear the way they speak, we label them? The truth that we have to acknowledge lament and deal with is a truth that I can't have for you or you can't have for me, but we have to seek the Lord together about it. You have to ask yourself, have I accepted this model minority myth? Have I accepted anti-any people group sentiments? 
as a way to ease into the acceptance of American way of life? Have I tried to minimize America's history so as not to offend or to not ask myself, where have I been complicit in maintaining racial injustice? And one of the most difficult truths to confront is how has the church participated and sanctioned the racial injustices in the past, and how has the church turned a blind eye to the racial injustices of the present? Let's let the light of truth reach into our hearts. The truth of the gospel, which includes that we are all made in the image of God, no matter who we are or where we came from, let that light of truth bring to the fore the things that we hold on to, the things that reduces God's image in his creation, and let us find grace and mercy from our Savior. This leads then to the next reconciliation stone in the bridge to Christian unity, and that's justice. So when we come face to face with the truth, the question, it can be really daunting, actually, when you come face to face with the truth. It's really, really difficult to bear. And then the next question we want to ask is, okay, now what? What can we do? Justice. Justice is often used together with the word righteousness in the scriptures. Being just, we know, is a chief attribute of God. We see his justice in many accounts of the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. For example, the prophet Jeremiah declares in Jeremiah 9, the 23rd verse, this is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. In Matthew, the 23rd uh, chapter in the 23rd verse, Jesus states, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes. You should tithe, yes. But do not neglect the more important things. So at the height of the news report of these extrajudicial shootings and killings of black people by law enforcement, which I'll, let me tell you, they've not stopped, even though we don't hear about it on the news, they're still going on. But Pastor Joseph shared an encouraging message with the congregants of Mars Hill Fellowship Church based on Proverbs 31, eight to nine, which says, speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, ensure justice, for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Even when it seems easier to sit on the sidelines, we are called to delight in justice as God does. That in all of the wonderful Christian things that we do, that we ought not to neglect 
the more important things of justice, of mercy, of faith. That we are to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Even when we think about it in our own lives and we're shining the light of truth in our own lives, that we seek repentance and that we offer forgiveness by the grace of our ever-loving and just God. So truth and justice are the stones to reconciliation. This reconciliation bridge is very, very hard to build. It involves seeking and applying truth to our lives and our perspectives which in turn exposes us, and we don't like to be exposed, which ultimately requires repentance and forgiveness. It requires a commitment to justice that moves us from the comfort of the, of the sidelines and pushes us into the front lines. Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, who is currently leading Quest Church in Seattle, Washington, and is a leading voice in Christian racial reconciliation work, says the following about reconciliation. Reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. I just want to say that again, that reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process that involves forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. I love this quote because it makes a number of really great points. First of all, it's an ongoing process. It's not a one event, a one and done, and we say, yay, we're done. It's part of that lifelong sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The ongoing work includes the hardest things that we find uh, to do in the Christian life. Forgive, repent, and seek justice. Even though we are people that have received forgiveness, this is one, these are one of the hardest things to do as part of a Christian. Forgive, repent, and seek justice. So that means we're constantly shining a light on our assumptions. We're constantly bringing it to God and his people. We're constantly seeking to make repair and to make things right. Reconciliation restores broken relationships. This is the piece that requires us truly existing together. We can't reach the world outside these walls if our relationships are broken by racial assumptions and biases that have never been mended. If we refuse to see each other or refuse to see things from each other's perspectives. Our relationships cannot be mended. And then in the quote here, she says something about broken systems. And as I was reading that, I was just like, man, well, this whole world is broken. 
We're, we're just, we live in a broken world. This world needs Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And if this world is broken, that means the systems of this world are broken. And so the systems that rely on the assumption of racial hierarchies and the systems that rely on pitting people against each other or the systems that rely on being segregated so that we're all competing for the same resources, this is the world that Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 13 and 6, where he says, now I am coming to you. I told them, talking about the disciples, many things while I was with them in the world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they did not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Hear this. We do not belong to this world any more than Jesus did. We do not belong to the systems of this world. We do not subscribe to the systems of this world because that's what Jesus said in his prayer. And even when it's tempting to, we must remember that we don't belong to this world. We ought not to subscribe to this com the, the patterns of it. We are not to be lulled by the comfort of it. We are witnesses to Christ's power, and by that we counter the world. We counter the world systems. According to Jesus, the world hates us because we do not belong. To me, that sounds wonderful because that sounds like we are a bunch of rabble-rousing, radical, Holy Spirit-filled folks who by the power of the Spirit disrupt the workings of this world. I don't know about you, but I want to be a rabble-rouser. I want to be radical. Disrupting the systems of this world, the workings of this world. We don't sit idly by when injustice occurs. By God's grace, we speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. We don't shy away from acknowledging our sin. We repent and we seek forgiveness. And we offer forgiveness when we've been wronged. We are radical because Christ prayed for us to be radical. So, I'm almost done. It wasn't an hour. Good. On May 20th, 2019, Mars Hill Fellowship Church and High Rock Brookline decided to partner together. At the time, it was only for the summer. At that first service, then lead pastor jo uh, for High Rock, Josh Thronberg, gave the welcome and shared that, like Mary, our partnering together was to provide an open womb available for the Holy Spirit to move and bring radical change into the world. I'm praying that like Mary, we would allow the Holy Spirit to disrupt us, to disrupt how we view people, to disrupt how we see power, to disrupt our way of thinking, to disrupt our way of life. For the prayer of Jesus to be answered, we need to be open 
to the Holy Spirit, completely upending the way we have been encultured to think and live. As Paul states in Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Earlier in the message, uh, I named a few names of those who were killed extrajudiciously by either citizens or law enforcement. They were more than names. They were people who mattered to God. They were made in his image, just like you and me. God wanted the best for them, just like he wants the best for us. They were not able to fully attain God's best because their lives were tragically cut short. We don't know who, if any of them, had the opportunity to know Christ as Savior. And that injustice should matter to us because it surely matters to God. There's a new uh, program on Netflix that... Um, going to watch, but it's hard, I know it's going to be hard to watch, called When They See Us. About five young boys who were uh, put in jail for a crime they did not commit. Uh, they were coerced into, um, into even saying that they did commit the crime, but they did not commit the crime. And they lost years of their freedom, years of their life. They were condemned because they looked the part. I have three boys that will eventually look the part. And we ought to know that God loves all of them as much as he loves us. We have to be convinced that he has a plan for them all, that he had a plan for them all. And he loves them with a passion. So you might say, well, how does this all relate to Christian unity? The pain of losing those dear ones too early and other acts of racial injustice is a heavy burden on many of your brothers and sisters. As Christians, we are called to share each other's burdens. And in this way, we obey the law of Christ. As we share in each other's burdens, we will see that racial injustice is a block to our oneness, you know? It breaks our ability to bring our full selves in front of each other. It prevents us from showing the world the beauty of God. You know how we're all from all over the world? That's the beauty of God being displayed. He has planted us in certain skin tones, in certain ethnicities, in certain cultures, in certain parts of the world as an example of who he is. So when we come together, we show the world the beauty of our wonderful and awesome God. So by building the reconciliation bridge with truth and justice, and leaning into the Lord for his grace to guide us through the discomfort of bridge building and being available 
for the Holy Spirit to disrupt us. We allow the words of Jesus' prayer to envelop us, where he said in verse 23 of John 17, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I'm going to call Jason back up. But may we be reconciled for the sake of unity, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the dying world who desperately needs our witness and who desperately needs to know Christ. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Can we all stand as we respond together?